Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. As Darren mentioned, we're, we're starting last week. He gave kind of an overview of, of where we want to go in this. Uh, the idea of kind of into the wild. What does it mean for us to be responsibly free? Uh, I think everybody is probably aware that freedom that is untethered isn't really freedom. It's, it's license. It gets crazy real fast. So, so what is it tethered to? What is freedom? What is liberty really anchored to? Um, and this morning we want to um, ask you to consider, last week again, just what, what is the you or who is the you that God sees? Because that's the true you. That's the authentic you. That's the you that he loves. God will never empower a false self. The self that we generate to negotiate life in whatever form or another, uh, God doesn't empower that self. He sees the true self and wants to empower and release that person, that self, to the wonder that he has created that person to be. There's only one of you, as Darren said last week, in the history of the world, billions and billions of people, there's only one of you. It's, it's important that you show up, that the you that is truly and authentically you show up, right? So we want to anchor our story back where it all begins. Uh, and uh, I'm going to make the point, as Darren did again last week, that the only way we can be both appropriately free uh, it, it is, is to be anchored to the sacrifice of Christ. So this isn't freedom to do whatever I feel like. This is freedom to do what I was created, planned on earth to do. So it might be that you are released into a visible, um, because every time we talk about this, uh, at some level, we make the mistake of thinking, well, that means I have to be the upfront person, or that means I have to make a big splash. No, we need people making big splashes. We do, we do. But we need people making little splashes, too. We need people who nobody else knows except those around them who are transformed to the likeness of Christ by their mere knowing of this person, Right? So it's, you can't use comparisons, especially comparisons with other persons, to measure the authentic you. That's why we have to start with the blueprint. We have to start with what God designed in the first place. And so, as usual, we'll go back to the beginning. Uh, it, is, it is critical, Genesis chapter 1, that we start there. Our story does not begin in Genesis 3, although we'll go there this morning. Uh, it begins in Genesis 1 where God tells us uh, by narrative who we are and what that means. So backtracking a little bit uh, and, and asking the question from this basic structure of Genesis chapter 1, why do we believe the lies that we believe about ourselves, about other people, about the world that we live in? What happened? And so we want to look at that and then uh, think through what difference it might make if we started to believe what is actually true. So we'll look at Genesis 1 to begin with and talk through that a little bit. Then we'll skip and go over to Genesis 3. You know this passage. We've referred to it so many times at the garden because it's just fundamental to who we are. It starts this way. 
uh, in verse uh, 26 of Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make, and I'm going to change this to, to humankind because I think that's more accurate from what the Hebrew is actually saying, in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So, God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God said to them, blessed them, and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, over every living creature that moves on the ground. So we'll go back to the first slide, and this is, again, we've spent time on this, so I'm not going to spend a massive amount of time developing this. But it's critical as we, as we think through this, that in, to be human, to be um, a person, is to be part of the image of God. That's where it begins. And, and please notice, image of God is not temperament, it's not personality, it's not creativity, although those, those might all be expressions of the image of God. The image of God is you, humankind, male and female. Please notice, again, not you as an individual, but you as part of the community of humankind. Not you as a part of the class of males or part of the class of females, but all males and all females, the entirety of humankind, past, present, and future, that is what it takes to represent, to image God. So one of the implications of this, and it's, a, it's a, uh, not an unimportant one, uh, is that in order for God to be imaged well on earth, each of us who comprise a part of that image have to be fully ourselves and mind our own business. Do you see what I'm after here? Because if God is going to be imaged well and you are part of his image as you are, you have to show up for work fully yourself without reference, but in reference to other persons. So I, I can't mind your business because if I am, whose business is not being minded? My own. So I have to be fully myself without reference to you, so that I can be the part of the image of God that I'm called to be and support you with reference to you to be the image of God that you are called and created to be. All right? Very basic things, but I'm thinking that that is the first place we go sideways. We try to be the image of God by managing other people in their being the image of God. So you will notice, if you, want to, if you don't mind putting that back up there, you will notice that uh, it is, uh, it, 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 when I use this passage uh, a lot, I, I, this is the question I ask. It's a silly way to ask it, but it's, it's important that you kind of get in underneath this. Over whom or what are persons not given authority or dominion? With me? So they're not given dominion over each other, and they're not given dominion over God. So in order for us to be who we are as the image of God, we have to be in dependent relationship with God and interdependent relationship with others. Okay? As soon as one of those goes sideways, we lose capacity to represent God well on the planet. 
As soon as I lose my dependent connection on God, sooner or later it's going to work itself out in my relationships with other people because I, I will have forgotten who I am. I cannot be who I am without dependent relationship on God. In the book of Genesis, that a dependent relationship is signaled by obedience to a single command. Don't eat the fruit that is in the garden, the tree of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Some translations, I think, more accurately say, don't eat yet the tree of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Eastern Orthodox Church suggests that this is not intended as a prohibition for all time. This, however, is something that we have to grow into. We have to learn how to manage knowledge of good and evil so that we're not destroyed by it. Does that make sense? But because, well, we'll get to Genesis 3 in a second. Uh, so, so with that in mind, again, that dependent relationship on God is what enables an interdependent relationship with other persons. We are not intended to engage in relationships with other people as part of authority or power structures. So not big over small, not male over female, not one race over another, not smart over less educated. Persons are not intended to exercise ruling authority over one another. Whenever that occurs, image is compromised. Whenever that occurs, whenever authority or power sneaks into our relationships with other people, the capacity for them and us to be the image of God is compromised. It's damaged. Does that make sense? So if you want to be into the wild and free, the first category of concern has to be dependence on God and interdependence with others. Because you can't be yourself without relation to others. It's this kind of a, 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 a shared journey that is not enmeshed. Okay? So this is, this is the, the first passage of Scripture. Uh, we are not given dominion over other persons nor over God. It is our relationship with our dependence on God that enables interdependence with others. So then, the question is, because we are created to be the image of God, how do we use the power that comes from being who we are? Because we are given power. We, we can actually affect outcomes. We can make things happen, uh, both in the spiritual realm, as we'll, we'll, we'll know, and in the physical realm. You can do things. Things occur because you're acting that wouldn't occur if you didn't act. This is why, by the way, prayer is so effective. Things happen when you pray that wouldn't happen if you didn't pray. Why? Because God has trusted us with the dignity of causality. You can make things happen, both spiritually and materially, because that's who we are. We're in both of those realms at parallel times. So what do we use the power that we are built with for if it's not used to, to, to over other people in authority over other people? And the short answer is we look back at our father in verse 26 here. We've only got 25 chap verses to get an idea of how God uses his power as the model then for how we are to use ours. And what you discover is that God uses his power in each of the creative days to speak things into being 
and then to release them with competence and capacity. The code word for this in Hebrew is, at the end of four of the creative days, it is good. It is good, which means it works. It is sustaining. It is sustainable. It's the same Hebrew word to talk about beauty. So good and beauty are the same word. And when God says of his creation, it is good or it is very good, what he's saying about it is, this will work. This operates. And he then releases it with capacity for its own life. He doesn't supervise dogs and cats and cows. And he doesn't need you to do that either. What he does, however, and what he invites us to do is create environments within which their full dogness or catness or cowness can be expressed. Right? Well, let's not do the cat thing. I'm not sure what to do with cats. Sorry. I just, I, I just can't go there. I'm thinking that cats are nothing but snakes with feet. And fur, and fur. My daughter-in-law sent me a meme because she, she loves cats and has infected my son. <laughs> but she sent me a meme the other day. You may have seen it on Facebook. It was making the rounds. It said, those who don't like cats simply haven't had one properly prepared. <laughs> sorry, 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 sorry. Now, how many of you have I just completely lost and you're going to come back next week when Darren's going to bail us out. All right. That's just the way it goes. But anyway, does, does that make sense? So if God releases the, the animate and inanimate objects of his creation with loving competence and capacity for their own lives, what do you think it looks like for us to exercise power? Precisely the same thing. So I release others I empower others, and here's the hard part, without controlling others. The misuse of power is often the misuse of power to control, which is the opposite of release with capacity. So those with whom I am in relationship, those that I interact with on a regular basis, I want to release, I want to empower, I want to bless, using language we used here a couple of weeks ago, and release them with capacity and competence for their own life, right? And support them in that. So rather than, than, than this, control, power comes and elevates. It comes and lifts. So I'm not exercising power over. I'm not enmeshed. I'm, whether, and this is true whether it's a marriage or a friendship or in parenting. What's the function of having children? To release your children to their adult selves with power and capacity to be who they are. That's what it, look, that's what it looks like, right? Um, and, and the same thing in a marriage or the same thing in friendships or working relationships, etc., etc. So this is the, the, the single approved use of power that, that we see here. In, in, and, and this, by the way, is what it will take in order for us to be good and or beautiful and free. To be good, i.e., it works. To be beautiful, i.e., it works. And free will require us to learn power this way. And here's the problem. Most of us 
have not had any good examples, or at least many good examples, of what that actually looks like. Most of us have experienced power and authority from others in a way of brokenness. So that comes out of Genesis 3, which is where we want to go uh, next. So we'll look at it in verse uh, uh, 1 of chapter 3, and we pick up the story here. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from the tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but, the God, did not, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You will not die, said the serpent to the woman. God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. We're just going to spend a couple minutes on this one. Please notice that the task of the serpent, both Old and New Testaments, the Satan, is simply to test our grip on reality. The essence of temptation, which is what he is on the planet to do, the essence of temptation is, do you believe what's true? And the way he tests that, whether it's in this passage here or in Job or in the children of Israel in the desert or Jesus in the wilderness or you on Monday morning is to ask questions about whether you believe that God is good. The essence of the temptation, the the craftiness, the schemes of the devil in this particular place simply are to say, do you believe that God is good, or is it possible that he's holding something back? That he wants, God's a little insecure, you know how he is. And in order for him to be God, he has to just have one card up his sleeve. And, 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 And he's just like anybody and everybody else. He, 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 he uses his power, I'm changing the language here, but uses his power for his own advantage. And, and just while I sit on this for just a second, it's critical that we understand that God doesn't need to use anything for his own advantage. He's God, right? So we ought not be surprised when the story circles around to the end that God shows us every card up his sleeve by hanging naked on a cross and we discover he doesn't have an ace up his sleeve. And he still uses his power to serve to death. That's critical. But it's going to take us a while to learn that, isn't it? So here's where we start, where God says, or excuse me, the serpent says, um, did God really say you must not eat from the tree? And her response, and it's important, by the way, because this has gotten so whacked sideways uh, with theological frame. Next couple, next slide's going to suggest to us that she's not here in isolation. Her husband, if you will, Adam, is with her in this conversation. And one of the things that I want you to notice throughout this whole thing is the silence of Adam, the silence of the man, using uh, Larry Crabb's language. Because where did she learn that you shall not touch it? God never said that. God said, don't eat of it yet. 
and a fence got erected around the tree as a, perhaps an issue of control or misunderstanding or whatever, and there's no correction of that. What marked our dependence on God that enabled interdependence with others was that obedience to this one single command. The implication in the question is that God is not good, that he's holding something back, and, and it Im- implicit to the undermining of identity as the image of God is this question. You, you'll notice, can you put that back up for me, please? Uh, uh, yeah, knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Please notice that that's an undermining. What does it take for us to be like God? It takes dependence marked by obedience to this one single command. Don't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When we sever that connection, what feels to us to be freedom, in fact, becomes slavery. And the illustration I've used before, and you're probably sick of it, but I like it, so I'm going to do it again. And that is the, the, the restriction of a kite string on a kite. Right? Uh, the, 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 what is it that enables a kite to fly freely? It's the string that anchors it to the ground. What is it that enables us to fly freely as the image of God? It is the single kite string of obedience to the word of God. And in cutting that kite string in the hopes that we might be free, what we become instead is trash blowing in the wind. So the serpent here is asking the core question, um, has God said, her response indicates uh, that she doesn't quite, perhaps, or they don't quite yet have a good solid grip on identity. We don't know that yet uh, because the narrative is told towards end, not always answering questions that we would love it to be asked. So so the anchor, the, the necessity of identity, this is why I keep on... We keep on hammering this home here at, at, in, in, at, at the garden is, is that identity is critical to everything. If you don't know who you are, it does not matter what you do. By the way, can we just flip that? If you do know who you are, it doesn't matter what you do. Because you live out of the freedom of being the image of God. So here's the temptation. You'll be like God. And nobody thought to say, wait a minute, we're already like God. We're already the image of God. Now let's go on to the next one and see what occurs. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate it. Then... The eyes of both of them were opened. They realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. So this story, if you don't mind just leaving that up uh, while I talk about this, uh, notice the thing, good for food, um, pleasing to the eye, desirable to gain wisdom. Paul says the pride of lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. That's those three things that set us up. This is the same taxonomy of temptation that we fall uh, down all, 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 all along the way. And, and, and notice again, secondly, sorry for keeping going back over this, but it's critical that we understand, he is with her. 
This is not someplace taking, taking place over in the back 40 of the garden. Uh, and she brings this unsuspecting but innocent guy this apple pie. That's not what's going on here. They are together in this behavior. He hears what she hears. And, is, and, 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 and for me, the, most, the saddest of these outcomes is the silence of Adam. It is deafening. He does not use his power to empower her by reminding her who she is. He abdicates. He's silent. So if you don't use your power to elevate, if you don't use your power to empower, if you don't use your power or authority to release with capacity, the first option available to you is to not use your power at all to not use your capacity to bless, to not use your capacity with your wife or your husband or your kids or your coworkers to remind them about what is true concerning them, to release them into their own journey, into their own life. And he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. And the outcome is exactly what one might expect. The eyes of both of them were open. They realized they were naked. This phrase... Um, comes out of Genesis chapter 2, the tail end of that chapter, where it says uh, uh, they were both naked and not ashamed, which is not primarily a description of their physical reality, i.e. they had no clothes on. It is a description of their intimacy. They knew each other and were known by each other fully, and there was no shame in their being known. Number one, one of the top two or three fears of people in North America is being known, being naked in public. And here, end of chapter two, they are known by each other. They are intimate with one another. In fact, such that we can describe them as one, even though they maintain independent, interdependent existences, they are nonetheless one in their interdependence intimate with one another, and now their eyes are open. And instead of that intimacy producing or being characterized by no shame, now they're ashamed. Shame is what happens when you attach behavior to being. Guilt is what happens when you do something wrong. You want to feel guilty when you do something wrong. It's really helpful. If your guilt, however, has not been well-trained by reality, then it doesn't take very long for you to cross the line away from guilt into shame. And now you're all of a sudden feeling guilty for being. Not for what you did, for being who you are. And you will use language of should and loathsome and whatever else that will describe your inner character, right? and you have increasingly lost capacity to be genuinely free. Because shame is more disabling than guilt. Shame is more disabling than the behavior that produced it. Shame will drive you into the ditch and keep you there. The reason I want to say this is that I th I'm, I'm really convinced and we've talked about this again before. This is all kind of pulling things be together for, for us over the, over the last number of years that we've been uh, thinking through these things. But shame 
will bench you when the Father has forgiven you and wants you back in the game. You will do it to yourself. When you feel ashamed, here's what you know, that is not God's work. Might be the voice of your mom or somebody else significant in your life. That's maybe how they parented you. But it is not God's voice. He never shames. Never. And when we do it ourselves, of course, what happens? We bench ourselves. We sideline ourselves. And I need, to know, I need you to know there's nothing God can do about shame because it's not real. It's not real. It's not anchored to reality. It's neurotic guilt. It's guilt for things for which you ought not feel guilty because you didn't do anything wrong. But this is the enemy. And what happens when shame attaches to being? We hide. It says here that they uh, sewed fig leaves together and hid themselves from one another. So please notice, the first casualty of our loss of identity the first casualty of our loss of dependence on God is our capacity for intimacy and interdependence with others. The very thing Genesis 2 tells us we need to actually be human is gone. So that's the first casualty. Unfortunately, the story doesn't end there. It goes on, uh, and in his silence, he abdicates, and rather than empowering her, and now here's the next part of the story. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman... You put here with me. She gave me from f- some fruit from the tree and I ate it. I don't know who's going down for this one, but it's either you or the woman you gave me. We need a big enough bus to throw both of you under it. But isn't that, isn't that what happens? So if you back, up, back it up to that second, uh, second slide, uh, I, we heard the sound of uh, you. Uh, back one more, please. Uh, heard the sound uh, of the Lord God in the garden, and what happens? We hide. And why do we hide? Because we're afraid. So now, instead of capacity for the image of God, rooted in intimacy, rooted in oneness, empowered by mutuality, empowering one another, the first casualty of our relationship severed with God is the severing of our relationships with others, shame, leads to hiding and fear and blame. Those are the primary characteristics of a Genesis 3 pattern of relational power. You with me? And now one more. Keep going a couple of verses. One more. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all living. He didn't have time to set the story for this one. But in Genesis chapter 2, the story is told of Adam's, the man's, naming the animals 
and discovering that there was not found for him among the animals that he named a helper who would be to him as God is to him, who is like him but not like him, which is the design specification of Genesis chapter 2. What is it that disqualified the animals from being helpers? He exercises authority or power over them by naming them. So any entity, any being over which the man can exercise authority or power is not a being that will function to him as God does with him. So you'll notice one of the first casualties, in addition to shame that produces hiding, fear that produces hiding, and blame, we now have, uh, go ahead and leave it up there if you would, please. God, we now have Adam exercising, controlling authority by naming over Eve, his wife. So his power that is intended as the image of God to empower her, he, he first case has abdicated and not used it when he could have. And now the narrative is told, because we still have power. There's nothing we can do about it. Power is not a bad thing. It's how we use it, right? So we've already learned how, what we're supposed to be using it for. We're supposed to be using it to empower, to elevate, to lift, to free others for their journey in liberty. And instead, we either abdicate or if you see yourself in the superior position as Adam did, you use your power to dominate. If you see yourself in the inferior position, as did his wife Eve, you use your power to manipulate. All three, abdication, domination, or manipulation, are misuses of power and will not produce the kind of freedom that, in, is in, that you are built for. How are we all doing this morning? You tracking with me? And here's, here's how this works. Because we are still afraid... Because we still function out of shame, we still use our power to do precisely what Adam did. We hide from those we love. We blame those rather than take responsibility. And in so doing, hide from ourselves. Please notice, he's hiding, they're hiding first from each other. Then because they're afraid, they're hiding from God. And thirdly, in his blaming of her, he's hiding from himself. You can only blame when you don't see the self that is authentically in the mirror. If somebody else is, to be, is responsible for your behavior, you're blaming. <coughs> you with me? It's hard. And in that blaming, inevitably, power gets used. Because we're afraid, because we're ashamed, we use our power to dominate or manipulate. Okay? So, and please notice... Uh, most of us were parented this way. As a parent, I've got to tell you, this is how I raised my children. Because I want outcomes. I want behavioral outcomes. And so shame and blame and the misuse of power produced outcomes. And in what it actually produced in my sons is hiding and shame. Or if you want a more positive or a more uh, contemporary vernacular... Shame continues along with anxiety and anger. 
So, so is that the outcome we want? Clearly not. But it's the outcome we will always get if we don't re-anchor independent relationship on God. So it's not out of loving relationship. It is uh, uh, out, of, uh, out of fear or out of shame. So obedience and dependence is not intended to be rote. It's not intended to be white-knuckled. Jesus will push us to love him as the foundation for obeying him. You seeing how this tracks together? Which, by the way, when he said this, if you love me, do what I command, what was his command? It was to love one another. So love re-anchors us. Love for Jesus re-anchors us in dependent relationship on him and on God, which enables us to love one another without doing them harm and damage. Please notice, if you don't let God love you enough to the place where you believe it and start to love yourself, you will harm others in your attempt to love yourself. You will be attempting to love yourself by the way that you love others. Can I get a witness? Anybody been damaged by that kind of love? Of course we all have. Because we're all Genesis 3 people. That's why Jesus came. He came to us and said, let me show you again how power is intended to be used to empower and release with capacity. And he laid down his life and died. Please notice, he will never dominate you even though he has the capacity to speak universes into being. He will never dominate you, ever. Not even when you ask him to. Anybody else prayed that? Dear Jesus, just make me do the right thing. I'm sick of the self-sabotage, right? No, no, he won't do that because what, he want, what does he want you to be? Yourself. You've got to be your responsible self. You've got to have freedom with responsibility. You've got, to, you've got to have capacity to blow yourself up and love yourself well enough to choose not to do that. We've got a week or two on that one for most of us, I'm thinking. Right? So in that, Jesus came, and, he, and again, uh, it, clearly, he never abdicates his uh, power and authority. He uses it, right? <coughs> but what does he use it for? John 13 gives us an example of this. He knew where he came from. He knew where he was going. He knew his father was. He knew that glory was present for him. What did he do? He washed our feet. Apparently, power doesn't mean exercising your will, making other people comply. It means serving well. So if we want to move into the, into the wild with freedom, the first place to start is with surrender. The first place to start is by saying, Jesus, you've got to teach me about this kind of power. Because I either let it go completely, I abdicate, or I dominate or manipulate. Anybody else see yourself in that mirror someplace? Just three or four of us? Okay. The rest, the rest we will pray for. <laughs> I'm thinking, friends, and the reason Darren and I have landed on this, I think, is that Long Beach needs a community of people who will bless it. 
not a people who will complain about it. Not a people who will uh, uh, undermine it. I'm thinking your husband, your wife, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your co-workers, your students, your children need people who will bless them. Need people who will use the power you have as the image of God to elevate, to lift, to release them with capacity for their own lives. What would it look like if in some way throughout every conversation this past week, this next week rather, you were to take and see if Jesus might open up a moment for you to speak truth into somebody's life? The clerk at 7-Eleven. The waitress. Right? What would happen? You don't have to use God language. All you have to, by the way, sometimes all you have to do is say thank you to restore dignity to the human person standing in front of you who is, like you, part of the image of God. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.